it's a dangerous thing, you know, to fall into apathy or hopelessness. Um, because once you get in that mindset, you know, then we really kind of are doomed to serve future generations. So welcome back to episode 15 of The Nest. Today we have a very special guest in honor of the 50th Earth Day, Mr. Bassignor. Mr. Bassignor has been here a teacher at Dura for six years now. Um, and we're kind of going to get into some of the things, um, one of the, some of the big topics that come around, not only around Earth Day, but are kind of mainstream um, conversations, not only in media, but amongst, amongst the youth. Uh, regarding the environment. So, Mr. Bassignor, say what's up to the people. Hey, how's it going? Glad to be here. Glad to talk about uh, Earth Day on this 50th anniversary of a very special event. Right. So, let's kind of just jump off into the deep end. Do you think the environment is in a better place than it was um, 50 years ago when, when Earth Day was kind of first initiated? Or do you think we've been kind of going backwards? I mean, that's a, a pretty open-ended question. I mean, in terms of legislation, there's been a bunch of positive things passed, especially in um, developed nations here, like in the U.S. You know, we've had um, Clean Air Acts, Clean Water Acts, Safe Drinking Water Acts, which we've really seen great strides in our air quality, um, including in terms of the air quality index, in terms of cleaning up um, rivers, lakes, um, but we also have, you know, a, a large way to go. Um, we still see a lot of air pollution in developing nations, and we have a global connectivity of our air. You know, it's not an isolated resource. Um, so it's, it's a difficult question to assess. We've seen some improvements in some areas, but, you know, you also have to look at a, a global view of how we're moving forward. So I would say yes um, and no. Um, there's been a lot of, um, I think, mobilization amongst the public in terms of standing up and really protesting and having marches to promote um, good behaviors and advance legislation. But, you know, we, we still have more to do. There's always more to do going forward, I would say. And you mentioned legislation. And one of the big pieces of, of legislation kind of being thrown around is, is the Green New Deal, right? So do you think the Green New Deal would kind of First of all, is it realistic to get implemented? Is it something that you see happening? And would it push us in the right direction? Or do you think it's still too little too late? I mean, in terms of the, the too little too late, it's, it's a dangerous thing, you know, to fall into apathy or hopelessness. Um, because once you get in that mindset, you know, then we really kind of are doomed to serve future generations. Um, I'm a big proponent of supporting the Green New Deal. For those of you who might not be aware of the concept, it's really promoting a switch to renewable energy infrastructure. Um, and if we look at that, it's a huge endeavor to undertake because our entire economy runs on non-renewable oil, essentially oil, coal, natural gas. Um, but the switch to renewable energy is really has economic, environmental, um, and national security implications. Right. I don't know if you saw, but the price of oil per barrel of oil dropped down to a negative number yeah. for the first time ever. Um, so think about it. If we had a renewable energy infrastructure set up, such as solar power, wind power, we could be generating electricity, not having to worry about the imports on our own national security. 
Um, so I'm a big proponent of it, whether the timeline fits, I'm not sure, you know, this is a really politically charged statement. Um, there's been other legislation that has worked um, in terms of uh, cap and trade on sulfur dioxide emissions, which was an amendment to the Clean Air Act in 1990, and that really curbed our acid rain problem. So there's been also some suggestions floating around that we could provide a cap and trade on CO2 to help lower those emissions, um, in addition to kind of following along with the Green New Deal guidelines. Right. And recently, well, it feels like more recently, um, large oil companies and fracking has kind of come under fire for, for the role they've played. Do you think it solely falls on these companies and on the fracking, or do you think society as a whole has to change the way of thinking? I mean, a lot of the pressure for change is based on the consumer. Um, you know, so these big corporations do play a role. You know, a lot of them um, are receiving government subsidies, you know. So from the federal level, they're receiving funding um, to keep their operations going. Um, so we kind of got to look at that. Um, but also individual choices um, do matter. You know, your awareness of your own actions. You know, if you could um, reduce your consumption, you know, refuse certain products, kind of rethink your own patterns. You know, the U.S., we have the highest level of consumption in general per capita. Uh, I'm not saying I'm completely innocent of, you know, being, you're being perfect. I'm, but just being aware that your simple actions could have larger consequences. You know, we, in my AP environmental class, we refer to a concept called the tragedy of the commons. One's own individual actions don't seem that large because you don't see a large effect. But if you compile that by, you know, 330 million people here in the U.S., those individual actions can add up to a much larger gross outcome. So do you think, because um, the public recently in the last couple of years, there's been a lot more of awareness, I would say, with the whole kind of save the turtles meme going around, switching over to um, multi-use plastics, things like that. So do you think the general public trends is headed in the right direction or do you think we still have a lot more to do? Um, I'm going to kind of go for both sides of this. Like I'm, I'm, I'm staying with my global outlook. Like we are, you know, quite um, lucky to be in an affluent developed country, you know, with the level of affluence, just wealth that exists. Um, we don't really have to worry about our day-to-day survivability. Um, we're in a developed country. Um, you really have a lot of impoverished areas where they may be aware that their actions are harming the environment, but they have no other choice. You know, they have to meet their daily survival needs, get food for their family, provide heat. Um, so I, I see both sides, to be perfectly honest. Um, being here in Miami, I used to live in New York City. I see some people who are really environmentally conscious. You know, they're always recycling, using reusable water bottles, you know, but then I also see people who seem to be completely unaware that their actions have consequences, littering, you know, buying case upon case of plastic water bottles. Um, my main, I think, takeaway from this is the importance of education. You know, you have to be aware of your actions to then consider the larger picture. So um, school courses like mine, environmental science being taught at the high school level and even um, younger ages could be a vital um, tool in raise, uh, raising that global awareness, I would say. 
Right. And you mentioned, for example, we've mentioned the reusable straws and the reusable water bottles. What are some other habits, maybe lesser known habits that, that maybe a listener of the show might not know of that you would recommend? Sure. Um, I mean, there's a lot of behind the scenes, small activities and choices you can make. Um, another couple of concepts discussed in my curriculum, one's ecological footprint, which is basically how much carbon you use annually based on everything. It might not be direct energy uh, consumption, but it could just be um, buying goods. You know, you buy a t-shirt um, from the store that was manufactured. You know, um, the, the cotton had to be grown, which takes water, which takes fertilizer. It then needs to be harvested, which takes fossil fuels. It needs to be manufactured in a warehouse. All of that goes into your ecological footprint. We, we discussed one's water footprint as well, which is similar. All of your consumption in terms of your diet takes a lot of water. So even doing simple things like maybe just slightly cutting back on the amount of meat you consume, especially red meat from, from cow's beef, um, will largely reduce your water footprint. Um, and that's one of the biggest environmental concerns is the availability of fresh water going forward for basically the entire planet. Water is a finite resource. You know, if you're, if you're brushing your teeth, turn off the running faucet while you're brushing your teeth or if you're washing your face, be conscientious not to take like a 45 minute shower, you know, do your shower, you can clean yourself, get in and get out. We don't, we want to be aware of our um, resource consumption essentially. Right. And I want to switch gears with you a little bit um, to some, to one of the, your projects that you have here at the school, which is the garden. Most people kind of, uh, there's a point in the year that they kind of see everybody running around with bags of dirt. Um, what was, when did you get the initial idea to start the garden at Doral? Uh, that project, um, I spearheaded about three years ago. So it's been up and running. You know, the first year was largely construction. So it wasn't really utilized. Um, I just got the idea in my head. I saw the, the open space. Um, and I have a love for garden. You know, I grew up doing it. So I have a passion um, and an awareness of the procedures. Um, and largely, I, I like to share that passion with others. You know, a lot of youth I see doesn't really necessarily know where produce comes from. You know, you go to the store and there's a bin with a bunch of apples or peppers, tomatoes, and you can just grab them and select them. Um, many students, their only experience growing anything was maybe germinating a seed like in fourth or fifth grade, you know, and that was it. Um, so it's really about, you know, getting you guys outside, literally getting your hands dirty. Um, and you can see kind of that spark and exuberation um, when that, that is realizing. Also, I can make a ton of curriculum connections. You know, I have an entire soil unit, an agriculture unit, and environmental science. So getting the hands-on experience and then connecting it back to the actual concepts is really beneficial um, in terms of education in general. Right. And um, I kind of want to bring up kind of global current events a little bit. Um, what do you think the effects of COVID-19 is going to be on the environment? I mean, in the short term, you may have seen the reports, obviously, you know, as entire nations shut down, people are sheltering at home. The amount of air pollution in terms of industrial smog and photochemical smog has been reduced drastically. Um, but that's not a long-term solution because as soon as that, those industries start firing again, um, the air pollution will come back. Um, I'd like to see a push um, to help shut down a lot of wildlife markets 
which this virus is thought to be originating from, um, because a lot of times those wildlife markets are really prevalent in the endangered species trade, and we're seeing a really, really large increase um, in extinctions and species being listed. So maybe some more international focus on the Endangered Species Act and looking at um, eliminating that. Um, it, it's, it's, it's tough to say what's gonna happen long-term. I mean, even societal, like virus, um, any infectious disease is a density dependent population control. You know, so as, as the human population goes up, we have these dense population centers, urban centers, the ability for any infectious disease to spread could, could be expedited and increased greatly. So, you know, it could have implications on the environment and our own society, which our behaviors might then impact the environment. What long-term ramifications are in, in, in store is really, really difficult for anyone, even, you know, a professional to predict, I would say. Right. And do you think um, kind of this self-quarantine, kind of stay at home, everybody kind of quote unquote fighting for survival as some want to put it. Do you think if we don't deal with, with the issue that is climate change, more of this is in our future? Or do you think it's going to be a very separate, different issue? In, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist, you know, I'm an environmental right. scientist, but I mean, a lot of these, these concepts are, are covered. Like I mentioned, disease as a density dependent population control. Um, I, I see there's a huge need to invest in medical research um, and basically the capacity to, to treat um, pandemics like this. Um, in general, you know, a, a virus does not spread as readily in warmer temperatures. So um, a lot of scientists are monitoring the spread. Maybe COVID cases will drop in the summer, but that's not true of all infectious disease. Um, as CO2 emissions and greenhouse gas emissions go up, the global temperature has been increasing. Um, the, the largest increase is in the Arctic Circle. As the Arctic Circle increases, the permafrost starts to melt. If you're unaware what permafrost is, it's permanently frozen soil. It's been frozen for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Um, as that permafrost melts, it releases methane. Methane is a very, very potent greenhouse gas. It has a large infrared energy absorption capability. As methane is released, the Arctic Circle heats up. The reason I'm, I'm describing this positive feedback loop is some epidemiologists are concerned there might be ancient bacterium or viruses that are frozen in that permafrost. So, you know, we've been carrying on our own biological ways for a million years, um, diversifying, evolving. We might be exposed to a pathogen that no one's immune system has any defense against. So that's really an unknown factor, and which is why I feel like we can't just ignore this pandemic. It's kind of like a red flag. We really need to invest in research and expanding our medical infrastructure, you know, in terms of PPE, personal protection equipment and test kits, and just, you know, studies into developing overall vaccines, I would say. Right. And what would you say to someone who, who would listen to this episode of the show or would listen to reports of our atmosphere heating up and they'll say, well, yeah, I mean, it might be heating up, but Earth does this every so hundred years. It has to go through its phases. What would you say to someone who, who in essence, doesn't believe the science? 
I mean, I would first that I had them one-on-one -on -one provide them with actual numbers data because, you know, that's what climatologists look at. You know, 97 plus percent agree that um, climate change is um, caused by humans. Our disruption in the carbon cycle, essentially, we're taking stored fossil fuels, a reservoir that's been in the ground for millions of years, and we're really rapidly putting it into the atmosphere. Um, we have seen shifts in climate based on something called the Milankovitch cycles. Every hundred years, we go through a shift where it's about 90,000 years ice age, 10,000 years the climate is now. We know this from ancient ice core data and looking at um, pollen sedimentation on ancient lake beds, for example. Um, so just showing the numbers, I would also say, and I also, this is one of my major talking points. Okay, I go, okay, let's say that climate change is not man-made. We do know that burning fossil fuels creates air pollution. There's millions and millions of people worldwide that die prematurely just from air pollution. So even if you disagree that it's causing a problem with the climate, everyone can agree that it's a human health crisis. And you don't right. want people dying from respiratory illness from something that can be preventable in the long term. So there's multiple sides of the argument you can kind of go to to, to address it. Right. And what's your prediction? What does Earth and, and humanity and the environment look like 20, 30 years from now? Are we living on Mars or, or have we turned it around yet? You know, I'm just going to kind of refer back to a very, very recent um, edition of National Geographic. I'm, I'm a big I'm a proponent of subscribing to National Geographic. They had an article, uh, a magazine that had two different covers. It was split in half. Um, one said how we saved the planet. And it was very, very positive. It talked about all our initiatives you know, how we saved endangered species, how we, made, we really made a shift. And the other half is how we doomed the planet. Um, and what's going to happen is largely based on this generation. Um, you know, my time is not past, but my maybe time to make a difference might, not, might be past. Like I'm educating you guys as students, but it's really going to be on the upcoming generations to really be responsible, speak your voice. Um, once you come of age, register to vote you know, voting for candidates that support your, your opinions and your viewpoints. I'm not even going to say opinions because science is an opinion. Facts are not opinion. They're numbers and there's no, there's no debating a scientific fact. Um, but really just voicing your concern and, you know, being proactive really could maybe shift us into that how we save the planet version of the National Geographic opposed to how we do it. Right. And to kind of wrap up here, I'm going to ask you something that I ask everyone who comes on the show. And that's, where do you want to be in 10 years? Where do I want to be in 10 years? I mean, I, I still want to be teaching. I love it. Hopefully I'm still here at Doral. I don't have any plans uh, right now on leaving. Um, maybe I'll be on another podcast, you know, saying what great strides we have made and I can go back and compare this. Um, so I, my long-term goal is to just, you know, keep on doing what I am doing. Um, I feel like I'm doing a really positive thing in terms of really educating um, students um, on environmental science. So I don't, I don't foresee myself changing that anytime soon. What, what does the garden look like in 10 years? Is, is it a jungle yet or is it? <laughs> I did go up there a few times, you know. Um, we've been hitting a, kind of a drought right now, so we haven't got much rain. So right now it's looking pretty crispy um, in general over the summer. It does grow into kind of an extensive uh, jungle mess, and we have to spend time clearing it out the next school year. So hopefully, um, come August, late August, early September, I'll be able to do that. 
Um, but yeah, I plan on running that project as long as I can and just improving upon it. Maybe I'm going to apply for another grant to get a drip irrigation system. So I'm just going to improve upon it. There is no, there's no looking back. There's only going forward. Right. Um, that concludes episode 15 of The Nest. Mr. Bassignor, thank you for coming on the show. We appreciate everything you do for us and spreading your knowledge with everyone. Um, again, uh, I know times are kind of crazy right now, but remember to leave toilet paper for others. And we'll catch you on the next episode of The Nest. Thank <laughs> you.